Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace to listen at your own risk. morning faithful reader welcome fortunate seeker this is podcast guys talking erratic errata podcast guys talking erratic errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age such as is that hockram is that robber is that uh, uh wait who is that redhead Oh, oh, I know this one. Uh, uh, it's Gideon? I have found that the best way to win at Shatranj is usually to turn into a giant snake and tear my opponent's throat out. Red Empress Vindictive the Third. Before I uh, allow you to summarize the story for today, I would like to just note that that epigraph, the Dread Empress really earns her name. If she's making the means to the end of tearing somebody's throat out, transformation into a giant snake, that's just roundabout, bullheaded, violent intent. There are many ways to tear out a throat, and the serpentine options are not high on the list of efficacy. Yeah, but the style points are way up there for that. Dread tyrants are very good at the style points. Honestly, until aside from Triumphant and Militia, that's really all they have going for themselves, so it makes sense that they would focus on that pretty hard. Not to say that Triumphant and Militia don't have excellent style but I know they're, mean. they're actually effective as well but today's chapter is an interesting one it's as far as advancing the plot of the story not a whole lot happens but it's a very important chapter nonetheless uh, we get a lot of background on the on colonia and a lot of background for some characters that we all know and love at this point the first Half or so of the chapter is dedicated to uh, a little bit of history and name, lore, uh, especially related to uh, the Wasteland. Uh, In particular, we get a lot of discussion about names for uh, orcs and goblins um, before we set up Cat entering the War College. We get a little bit of information about the college itself, and then Cat is more or less unceremoniously dumped directly into a an active war game which is a practice at the college to prepare the the officers and legionaries once she's there most of the chapter is spent introducing everybody's hmm. once she's there most of the chapter is spent introducing a cast of characters that will stick with us and with cat for most of the story several of these characters will be around until the very end and those that aren't only leave because they die and it's important these are great characters we love them this chapter just feels like a nostalgia hit honestly once you've <laughs> once you finish the story and come back to it and it starts off with millet bread they begin with late lunch they eat millet bread millet bread is fantastic please go out of your way to find some my dear listeners definitely a good start to anything a, a day a war game, a chapter. A war crime. Wait, sorry, that's a later chapter. That's most <laughs> later chapters. Sorry. 
lunch is a setup for introducing a bit more information about Precy, about historical Precy name lore, which, as far as the events of the series go, are unimportant tidbits. But as interested scholars of the of the practical guide itself, I think we can find a lot to treasure in what Black reveals to us. Absolutely. We get things like the fact that the Precy names in of the past tended to be divided along ethnic lines, according to Black, which is not surprising. That's something that we see not infrequently. But uh, in this little introduction to uh, these, that, that sort of divided names, we get a... Uh, we get a mention of champion derivatives uh, showing up among the Seninke, which is interesting because I guess I didn't really put a lot of thought into it, but it did catch my attention that the champion or champions aren't inherently heroic. You do, it, it seems as though most names tend towards heroism or villainy. The names that straddle the line don't tend to lean one way or the other, but apparently champion can be on either side or types of champion can be on either either side and that that's interesting but also that it's explicitly referred to as champion derivatives we've we see the champion and here we're talking about various other types of champion which i'm sure are adjective champion of various types and, I, and it's interesting that i don't know that it feels like there are only so many stories that could be attached to champion and yet we have a plural a, a number of derivatives that show up in this specific place and are there is that is champion just a name that shows up all over the place with a bunch of different varieties or is it just very focused in the Sininke and also the one who kills captain well the existence of a champion does seem to be one of the most universal of stories available. The idea that someone succeeds through great physical prowess, of course, rises up everywhere. And of course, like so many names, the adjectives really will build into the uniquenesses of it. But I do wonder whether the ancient Tagrebi, the ancient Soninke, whether the entirety of the East of modern praise was in fact originally evil, or could that have shifted after the occupation and the rise of the or after the occupation, or even after the rise of the Dread Empire? Because stories do change. These names we see haven't been seen in a millennium, in over a millennium. Could we have seen lowercase valiant champions arising? in these parts or was the entirety of the east always entirely evil that's fair i guess i don't know we don't usually get a whole lot of information prior to the uh the Mesen conquest and you know the subsequent rise of price as we know it i guess potentially yeah especially since we're talking about various ethnicities here i definitely don't want to uh, <laughs> imply that and ethnicity is always evil and always has been. So it very well could be that we only associate these people with the evil side of things because of their inclusion within the Dread Empire at the time of the story. That's It's very hard to say how things were and what that meant at the time, too. We see evil meaning many things. We see the historical praisey conception of evil, and we see practical conceptions of evil. And... Catherine, throughout the story, is pretty plainly evil, but she's not often wholly vile. And she certainly pursues good, despite all that. Even if we found that a group were totally evil, unless they're as deranged as, say, the drow, that doesn't mean there's no good in them, lowercase? It, evil and good are obviously very much alignment, as in to which side and to which and with which gods you are aligned more so than it is morality plenty of heroes do lowercase evil things plenty of villains are you know decent people aside from the fact that they're willing to do some extra murders or what have you which i think isn't necessarily a profound 
bit of detail to this story. Like that, that's a pretty well established part of this setting. But it, it is important to to think about when we're talking about the history of these. The people from this region were evil, and what that actually means for sure. It bears recognition. We would be falling into an embarrassing trap by essentializing evil somehow. It's a very good book. Listeners, if you haven't read it, stop listening. Go read it. Come back. Uh, subscribe to our Patreon on the way. But what's really interesting about this, too, is it shows, I think, implicitly, some of Black's interests beyond the mere political side of the Imperial Project. He has an interest in names that have died out. He has knowledge about them. And I don't expect the average Pracy would have any knowledge. The average Pracy name would. I don't expect the average Dread Imperator would be aware of these histories. Why does Black care so much? Well, one, he's a big smart boy. But two, the idea of names dying out, the idea of ways of life dying out, are very important to someone who wants to herald certain extinctions. The most pressing of which, as we'll get to later in this chapter, is the office of the Chancellor, which he's abolished. But is that going to last? Or is that not going to outlast his death? Like, literally being the same moment, the rise of a chancellor being his death. Who knows? It really is impossible to say, you're right. What is not impossible is gaining the tower. Climbing the tower, claiming the mantle. It's open to anyone. Yeah, and mostly the nobles get it because they have hot bloodlines. But commoners have achieved it. I assume that Catherine is a valid candidate she certainly spends a lot of the story kind of dancing around the idea of maybe there's a lot of there would be a lot of readied momentum for that arc if she chose to take it and knowing catherine's ends based justification of means it's always dangling there as a tempting direction for the story to go and the way she describes it here i think our introduction to the succession process of praise she says that was one of the most seductive parts of the imperial philosophy. She names it seductive. She acknowledges that someone could want it. Now, to be fair, Kat thinks just about everything is seductive. She's kind of just like that. Not about everything. I've, I'll, I'll have an example later. Keep this in mind, <laughs> listeners. But it's interesting, for sure. It A lot of the story does feel like that is very likely a direction that Kat will go. Absolutely. And, and even up until leading into the final push, the final arc up north, there's still the will she maybe claim it herself storyline just kind of hanging out there. It you're right. It, it's it's always there for the taking for Kat. And if she had a mind to I mean, I don't think anybody would disagree that she could have climbed the tower herself. She just, that wasn't what she wanted particularly. I mean, it's not like she was ever in need of a direct and relatively simple path to acquiring a name or anything. No, that doesn't sound like Kat. You're right. And speaking of a simple path to to getting a name, uh, Kat draws a, a comparison that I'm, I'm interested to hear, to hear your thoughts on. She says that... Um, talking about the difference between Callow and Prace, she says, the fact that more often than not, the kingship of Callow came with a name, had seen them rule unchallenged. In Prace, though, anybody could claim the tower if they were clever and ruthless enough. I, I'm not sure I see what the distinction she's aiming for here is. If you become the monarch of Callow, more often than not, you get a name. If you become the dread emperor or empress of praise you've got a name she seems to be saying that anybody can climb the tower because they get a name but on the flip side the monarch also gets a name is the difference just that you can't become a monarch without whatever obscure callowan law backing you up or i'm not sure she she seems to be making some kind of point about how easy it is to hold on to power when in reality both rulers end up with that kind of power? I were to defend Catherine's reasoning. I would perhaps suggest that whosoever climbeth the tower receives a name, and it's mighty. And it is the climb to the tower that gives the name, that gives the might. 
anyone can do this. Theoretically. I mean, most people can't. But that's just an issue of sharpening iron. In Callow, the monarchy comes with names regularly. And the monarchy is lineaged. If you claim the throne, true kingship still passes on to the exiled prince, the uh, forgotten heir, the what have you. And that name then serves as a defensive mechanism for the royal line because the true royal line has names by virtue of being the true royal line, meaning they hold the throne, making them the true royal line. And anyone else to take the throne remains pretender even when crowned. And that's the best I've got. So in you're saying that in Callow, the names, the mantles, the stories back up the idea of a true king or queen, whereas in Prace, there is no such thing, and it's just whoever happens to be seated at the top of the tower. I, I can get behind that. Sometimes people do hold on to the tower for a while, even intergenerationally. Catherine says this as though it's not an achievement even worth discussing, but... She says the longest a family had ever managed to claim the tower was three generations, and they've been wiped out to the last when the third emperor was overthrown. What an achievement, and where do we get details about this? To hold on to the tower for generations? And knowing that the dread tyrant is generally effectively immortal, not that it matters because they get overthrown. I also love the adherence to the cultural norms of, obviously, the child usurps the parent. Good job. Or the brother usurps the sister or the uncle usurps the niece i don't care i want to know about this family there there is a very real chance that three generations held the throne but they did so over the span of you know three years or something but yes it is it is still interesting to have kept it within a, a single family like that it seems like that would be a goal frequently of the given the way that the um the high lords often treat their domains so it is impressive it's both impressive that some that a family managed to last three generations and also interesting that three is the longest that nobody else managed a, a longer hold i would wager though that the nature of praise, the nature of the story in praise, the nature of the mantle of Dread Emperor, Dread Empress, uh, nudges the person holding that and nudges the people of praise to disallow generational inheritance. It it's it feels like it's this a situation where reality itself would discourage this sort of thing <laughs> because. If the Dread Emperor suddenly becomes an inherited title, then a huge part of what makes the Dread Emperor the Dread Emperor isn't there anymore, and that's it's a different story entirely. Race is locked into a beautiful, vicious cycle. Beautiful and is certainly a word for it. And speaking of that which is beautiful and vicious, Catherine is sitting down and talking with Black. She's willing to learn from him, but she makes a clear note, I would not forget or forgive. And I just really appreciate that, again, she has nothing but a stereotype. Good job, I don't know, Lady Callow. Yeah, she definitely lives up to her heritage with that that line. But just a couple sentences later, she also pretty much directly is living up to the title of this work, since she's referencing her big political maneuver. Cat is... Cat is fitting neatly into being the Callowin protagonist of this story. She won't forgive or forget, and she's planting the seeds of a war for her own gain. It, it's she's Callowin, but she's evil. She's just practical about it. Now I get it. Yeah, I, I was worried that we were waiting a little too long to explain the title of the work. Um, so I figured we should probably just get that in here now before we get too deep into this podcast. To go deep into the history, we find out that when the Mitsins came and conquered, they raised the largest city on Kalernia at the time. This largest city was a holy city, the holy grounds, of the Broken Antler Horde. The orcs were the greatest city builders of the age, or at least built the greatest city, I suppose there's a distinction, and I, or at least held the greatest city, to be fair. But the biggest city was orcish, and I think that's awesome. That's not how 
I think we are told to think of them by the more dominant cultures. And that's fun. Which I think makes sense. And it's, it's referenced right before that sentence about the broken antler horde. Black says they, they the Meetons, systematically dismantled every aspect of orc culture. The orcs that we see today, the orc culture we see today, is the result of their history being intentionally obliterated. Basically, what we see of the orcs today is literally the result of a genocide. So it makes sense that we are surprised to hear that they were in possession of the greatest city in Colernia. That's intentional, that we wouldn't expect that. What kind of effect would that have on a culture or on, or rather not culture, but what effect would that have on names, do you think? We get a, a little bit of discussion about orc names in this section. Uh, and there are a couple of things that really stood out to me about that. Uh, first, Black says, there needs to be a weight behind them names, a cultural imperative. We get in this, he's he's using this to, to explain why orcs don't have many names, why you don't see too many orc mantles. But we see any. Through, right now, any, exactly. Throughout Colernia, there are many um, names that are not race-specific aside from the fact that humans tend towards them, but I think that's more a case of Colonia's population and the focus of the story than anything else. But definitely culture-specific doesn't seem to necessarily be required. We were just talking about the champions and how they're Sininke, but we've, we see champions elsewhere as well. The There are definitely names that are culture-specific. That does happen. But there are some that seem to be a little less so i mean just the easiest one is squire cat is callowan but she's a pricey squire and we later see a squire that is fully callowan uh, it's interesting to me that the orcs don't seem to get to tap into that we they talk about ogre names and we see an ogre achieve a name that seems to be a pretty human name the black knight but orcs explicitly, apparently, only get names related to orc things, I guess. Like, it wouldn't surprise me to find an orc who is the cursed, or an orc captain, or, or any of these more broad names. But Black seems to be implying that orcs don't do that. In fact, he says that the this is very wild to me, that the most common name for the orcs was Warlord. They must almost never get names for some reason that we I'd love to explore a little bit because that means that the most common name among orcs is a name that requires one person to unify a fair chunk of all orcs under his or her banner and to basically have a single person over the the tribes since that's what we seem to see that's what it seems like warlord is and that that situation that seems like it would not be super common that situation produces a name and that name is the most common name among orcs not the berserker or something that you would expect to see based on what we know about orcs or anything like that or some kind of we i don't know that they're rare enough that a name that seems like it would be rare is actually the main name they get i wonder if orcish exclusion from the rest of the name process could be attributed to the total othering of orcs. Even though they're more integrated into the legions than ogres are, say, orcs are always orcs first before anything else, or at least have been historically. Uh, Hakram gets a name pretty quickly, actually, but he's also part of the first generation that's been integrated back into the continent rather than and we'll bring these monsters down to fight in our wars a bit and okay go away now you're monsters you're not part of our society you're just legally subject perhaps and i wonder if this the scale of this othering could be such that black is actually despite his relative care giving into a skewed or propagandistic style of history to actually think the most common name with warlord because it matches with current orcish culture more or less yeah they don't have the independence to get that name but they're a warlike they're a savage and warlike race currently and that's all they are so far as 
anyone is concerned. But were they? Are orcs alienated from their history entire? I don't know. From all history entire. Are they just bubbled off? Or have they been until the conquest? I don't know. I suppose it is. Yeah, that it is a good point that Hakram's name that he gets early on is a name that if I had to guess, and I feel pretty comfortable with this, it's not an exclusively orc name. So he does sort of blur that. But also, uh, probably worth noting, I would say Hakram is part of the second generation of orcs since he's of a generation with like Hellhound, who's has a parent who is part of the first generation uh, as a general. But I guess the first, first generation gener- native born. Sure. Okay. I, I that that's fine. Yeah. I I don't know. I I think I think Hawkeye is definitely an interesting case there, and it it very well could just be as simple as there was a genocide of orc culture and they have no choice but to be what Prace treats them as, at least for now, until, you know, Hawkram fixes things because he's the hero. Uh, sorry, the villain. It is, I don't know, we we don't really get a lot of information about orcs as a whole. I think we get this and we get a few mentions here and there, but I definitely think when we're looking at Hawkram's warlordship we should uh we should pay attention to how it's referred to by orcs because right now we're getting like you said we're getting the perspective of a human uh a human who's doing good things for orcs but also he's doing those things because it benefits himself so his his perspective is not necessarily going to be colored with the most altruistic lens possible and yet the orcs aren't even the people we know the least about yeah, we the other race that makes up the other species that makes up the empire that you've got humans, orcs, we've talked about ogres a little bit. We get the goblins who are intentionally incredibly secretive. We talked about uh, early on how black doesn't know goblin language despite working with them for his entire adult life because they intentionally... And being the kind of guy who values language. Right, exactly, because they intentionally do not share that. They're very secretive uh, because they have to be, not you know for any reason necessarily intrinsic to what they are, but because the matrons make them. But there's this sort of idea, there's, there's some discussion about the goblins, whether or not they have names. Black thinks that they do have names, and we had talked about this last time the goblins came up. We had discussed whether or not we thought they had names, uh, whether or not the matrons were a group that shared names, that had names together, that had a name or whatever. Black thinks they do. And I mean, he's kind of the expert. He's when it comes to name lore. We did talk about just now how trustworthy he is with the orgs. But frankly, he's our most by a fair bit, he's our most reliable narrator when it comes to name lore. And he does mention that the reason we might not ever hear about goblin names is because despite names tending to be pretty big, visible things, if the culture that creates the names values secrecy, then the names themselves might be pretty secretive in a way that you don't see elsewhere. It would be fascinating to know what comes out about them in the decades following the pre-epilogue conclusion of the series. But then we go from things that we're told we don't get to know about to learning about things that we wish we didn't have to. Black gets a letter from Scribe. He breaks open the seal. He scans the contents. Quote, face turning pale when he got halfway through. Ooh, that is a lot for Black. I mean, he's got a pretty pale face to begin with. But yes, something that can visibly shake him is concerning. He complains that not even Triumphant was fool enough to break the decree, and she broke nearly every other law on record. Not even Triumphant messed with whatever this is we're about to find out. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And And what is it? It turns out the tower has received a red letter, which we'll discuss a little bit in detail. But first of all, I had forgotten how early in the story this happens. It to me, in my in my mind, this is something that happens later on once Cat's more established and has more of a stake in Prace. And no, this is just like, welcome to Prace. By the way, there's a red letter. 
that's that's big that's sudden that's for as little as the red letters matter actually in in the story they're kind of a huge deal and affect everything what are the red letters the red letters are the gnomes when somebody when a civilization gets a little too uppity the gnomes roll up and tell them to knock it off you get three strikes and you're out and by out i mean your entire civilization is gone there's basically the equivalent of atlantis in this setting the city is called kerguel kerguel which cats thinks is a city that got sunk into the oceans as kind of mythological legend turns out it was an incredibly powerful ocean and the gnomes wiped it out by themselves easily it's the gnomes are terrifying. They're the masters of technology far in advance of anything else in Colonia or the world, apparently. And they have taken it upon themselves to make sure nobody else matches them. When certain technological feats are achieved, the gnomes send a letter and say, stop doing that thing. And it's bad news. And Black takes it seriously because he's smart. And there are two red letters in, in the last century. The previous one being a farming machine under Nefarious. We get no more mention of that here. It's just mentioned. We move on. But that's a little bit of what's going to be talked about later, in it? Nefarious had a farming machine. One advanced enough, one that pushed the boundaries enough to get a red letter. Why would anyone, even a dread Imperator, be fool enough to sponsor such a thing? Or allow such a thing under their watch? Why is farming so important? I thought that was just about how much corn you get. Who cares? And these red letters are serious business. A farming machine gets one. The Hearthmaker tribe is playing with powders. Not 100% sure what that necessarily means. But uh, regardless, Black's response is (laughs) that the tribe needs to be purged and the research destroyed. and. He's this is he follows that up with the matrons will have a fit. He's crossing the goblins, he's making the matrons mad, he's messing with a finely crafted balance that allows the tower to benefit from the prowess of the goblins because it's that or risk all of Prace being destroyed, and that's just an accepted fact of living in this setting. This setting, we learn something even more, I think imminent than the threat of the gnomes because catherine being catherine immediately decides to struggle against the hand of something too powerful looming over her as though she had a chance she says if they're threatening you you must have found something they're afraid of she says you could fight them and black responds with something i don't think we had any hope of realizing until now in the grander scheme of things catherine I'm the petty warlord of a backwater kingdom. The only nation on our continent that can be considered something other than a regional power is the kingdom under. When one of the real world powers tells the empire to do something, we do it. Praise is nothing. The dread empire is regionally significant. Frankly, the dead king, not that we have even heard of him yet, but the dead king is a regional power. I don't know if he counts as a nation, actually. But everyone else is regional? What is this world? I can't wait to find out. It is interesting because, assuming the dead king is successful in the things that we see later on, I would say he'd probably become more than a regional power. But for now, sure. Also, it is a nice, a neat little touch that we see the only nation on our continent that can be considered something other than a regional power is the kingdom under. They obviously... That's the front that they present and that we understand to be the truth for most of this story. So it's it's interesting that he's confident that they are not merely a regional power. I think based on the information we have by story end, it sounds like all of Colernia is mere regional powers because I, the Kingdom Under is not as united and powerful as, <laughs> as Black assumes, of course. It's, I don't know, it, it, it's interesting i'm i'm we only get little pieces here and there about things across the sea from colonia you know the we talk about the meetings a lot and the the balites 
hegemony shows up and uh the yante there are a number of things that we hear about and we don't really know the scale for any of them we don't know what the world powers are except the gnomes who are a threat to just about anybody it sounds like and otherwise all we have is the comparative what are the other powers Eh, bigger it is extremely sensible that he finishes this little discussion with i will not face destruction in the name of pride good for you black i imagine that if you went through most of precy history the number of chancellors black knights dread emperors who would agree with you would be pretty low oh black sets off to deal with this whole situation sort of a a reason for the two of them to split up because he doesn't want to see cat directly involved with the matrons yet fair enough and so cat is sent on her way to the war college without uh without black uh as part of this we get a nice little scribe moment where black asks is there a company with a missing officer a company of new recruits within the war college where these companies are basically just classes more or less and this isn't some grand reveal or anything, but this fact that Scribe just knows that there is a, an officer missing in one of the companies in the War College. It, it's her whole thing, of course, but it's very fun when it just sort of casually comes up like that. Black doesn't even react to that like it's special, because of course not. He asked a question of Scribe the same way I would ask a general knowledge question of Google. I will have the answer. He hums thoughtfully in response, and knowing that... There's a war game. There are war games. There is a war games. They game a war beginning this evening. He says, sink or swim. Fitting. And I don't think this is a chance where it's really sink or swim. They already did that part in a much more serious thing. This might be important to her development and all, but the sinking here is likely a whole lot less drowny than it was against the Lone Swordsman, I have to say. Yeah, failure here means... Kat's military career is set back a little bit, and she has to learn from Black a bit more. She's still the squire, and still alive, notably. If she lost here, I'm sure she'd find a way to at least be half undead. That's just... I mean, well, of course. That's just what you do when things go poorly. So what's the application process for this school like? Well, it seems as though the application process is... Scribe knew you were going to be going there right away before the conversation even happened and you get a legionaries kit and then are sent on your way and there you go at least for you know if you're a villain wow what would black do without scribe scribe's answer to that very question is a very very calamity response tempered by her being scribe the same things scribe replied blandly just not as well and we see that happen with hakram later on catherine does not change for the lack of Hakram, she's just worse. We should have that meme. We get Catherine now. We get Catherine at her height, meeting Catherine after Hakram leaves with the, who are you? I'm you, but worse. But Kat sets off for the War College, and we get a little bit of background about the War College so that we know the context into which Kat's being inserted here. And uh, one of the early things that's mentioned is the uh, admission process for the average student the average legionary here um and it talks about how in earlier times the uh until recently admission had been restricted to the children of imperial aristocracy and in even earlier times only to the boys among those and that's really interesting because that's one of the very rare gender-based restrictions that we see in this entire story we talked about this earlier how egalitarian things tend to be in this story in a way that we really appreciate. And so it's interesting to see that that's not necessarily, I don't know, an inherent part of the setting, but in some places at least, a new thing, a recent development. Colonia's enlightened, if you will, take on gender isn't just that's how Colonia is, but something that has developed over time or been forced into place by powerful people. It's Seeing that it's so widespread, this idea of gender not really being a huge deal is 
surprising if it's only a recent development. I don't know. It, it, it's that line right there really caught me off guard that it's only a recent development that girls can go to the war college. At least relatively recent, which is thrilling how quickly rights spread then. Or interesting how Price was a holdout in a holdout or just a retrograde society. I don't know how it was in the rest of the world. But the resolution of that problem, I think, was both metal as heck and awesome. Dread Empress Terabilia I had put a swift end to that particular brand of stupidity by using the headmaster as ammunition for her latest catapults. Much in the same way that my own teacher defenestrated the last headmistress when she'd refused to allow, quote, filthy greenskins, end quote, in her classrooms. And all I'm saying is, if Susan B. Anthony had thrown Millard Fillmore from the highest tower, that would kind of been awesome, right? Real tragedy that that didn't happen. Honestly, though? And I think MLK is too recent for me to suggest throwing Lyndon Baines Johnson out of Air Force One, but... Yeah, it, it's it it's a little jarring to see something like this in Practical Guide, and it's it's interesting. I, I you know, I wonder if we'll note other instances like this. I, I don't think so. I can't think of any other places where it makes sense, but uh, I, I am curious if this is Price is bad, or if it's just actually that feminism, I guess, is a recent is recently introduced to Colernia. It's it's hard to say. I'm I'm curious. I do appreciate though that it was solved quickly at the hands of a woman who took the long journey from the tower all the way to the war college. Long journey, yep. Yeah. Thinking back at, before reading this chapter, I was under the impression that the war college was sort of out in the middle of nowhere in the wasteland it's directly on the outskirts of the capital city it's it's right in the sh- it's the shadow of the tower i don't know i i guess i my geography was a little messed up i i did not have in my mind how how close they were which kind of paints the how it paints this setting in a, in a new light for me that the uh these the new generation of officers is training almost within eyesight of the dread empress at any given time it's it's adds a layer of pressure i would say to the the new legions the legions that are training here speaking of new perspectives there's a line here that wasn't much to read originally and it's not a huge thing now but i feel i understand it better Towards the end of Dread Emperor Nefarious's reign, which could more accurately be called the beginning of Dread Empress Militias, and you know, that's the kind of thing you read and pass over. It's history, sure. I, I, it's thought out, I trust it, whatever. But we see a succession crisis later on in book six, I want to say, maybe seven. And the concurrency of Dread Imperial reigns is something I just get now. Militia was assuming a mantle of Dread Empress, even while Nefarious held the mantle of Dread Emperor. That's it. I get it now. Yeah, I mean, names, the transition into names is seems like sometimes pretty abrupt, and especially when you have to murder the predecessor. But the political nature, the, the fact that it's whoever controls Prace has it, has this name definitely i you know there can be some blurry borders there for sure uh in, in with that specific title at least so you read orson skycard's most famous work of course i'm not wrong in feeling echoes of it here right it it's a little ender's gamey for sure and i i think that that's also just it's a little young adult story where the protagonist goes to a school to learn magic or warfare or whatever that that shows up in other places as well and it they tend to do things like this but yes there there's echoes for sure i don't accuse anything of being necessarily derivative or even inspired by or what have you i think it's an artifact of the situation but if you like this then have you considered ender's game it's a book about a small child who does terrible things readers of practical guide also liked okay go on now to be fair Kat is a lot more aware of how terrible the things she is doing are compared to Ender. Like, let's not. But Ender has a lot more feelings about it, so it balances. Yeah, Kat is famously emotionless. Wooden protagonist, truly. <laughs> yeah. The 
so the war game is beginning in uh, a place called Bite Valley, which nice job, Price. Nice. And there's a a, a old fort there that is the basis for some of the war games. And the it, this fort is described as a leftover from the days where the Order of the White Hand had occasionally crusaded their way east to Aether itself. They there's been discussion about the Order of the White Hand, especially when we were talking about the Blessed Isle a couple other times before that. I guess I wasn't anticipating that they were successful enough and with enough frequency that it required a specific fortress to fight them back in the shadow of the capital city. They were they were that successful at crusading that they regularly made their way to Aether. That's very impressive. But also, I feel like that fits the kind of hyper-caricatured nature of historic callow and praise. Like, of course, there's a forward bastion of the holy order of blah, 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 right next to the dark city of blah, 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 in the shadow of the evil fortress of blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, why not? That just makes everything so much worse for everyone. Fair enough. That's how they did it back in the cartoon days. The cartoon Have you watched days. He-Man? <laughs> I haven't, actually. But that's what I figure it is. So what you're saying is the Order of the White Hand is just He-Man? I mean, what's the difference between Grey Skull and White Hand? Am I right? You are right. Absolutely. Let's go on. I'm at my limits here. <laughs> we We get a little bit more description of the valley. It's a valley with a fortress in it. There's some discussion about the war games, which tend towards scenarios based around the fortress. And then Cat is given a name or picks a name. I'm not exactly sure here. And is introduced to these new to her squad, her her line as Lieutenant Callow. Which I have to say, when it comes to code names, that's a that's pretty on the nose. It's on the nose. It's fantastically terrible. And also, we learn with Ratface momentarily, people pick their own names. This might be a name Catherine would have picked just because. It is a pretty spiteful name, actually. Yeah. And it is the Valley of Spite. Oh, it's that's why the Order of the White Hand was there. It's a spite place for the spite people. Uh... That's actually really cute. Oh, I'm such a good close reader. So... Immediately following this Lieutenant Callow, we get an introduction to, I mean, one of the most important characters in the story. We don't get much information about him. We don't know who he is. We don't really know anything about him here. We just get his name and the fact that he's Cat's second in command, basically. We get Hawkram. Hawkram's on screen. He's an orc. He's, you know, a nice person. He's great. He's fun. We love him. But not much happens. Basically, as soon as he's introduced, he introduces Cat to the best goblin we meet in Robber. Sergeant Robber, sorry. It's, it's, there's not much to say about them showing up here. We don't get a whole lot. But I mentioned at the, the top of the episode, this is just like sheer nostalgia. It's coming back to all of our friends when they're babies, and it's wonderful to see them all, all showing up here. The gang is the gang's getting together. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We have relatively little description of them, but I would like to go through the description explicitly and completely because I'm the type of person who isn't terribly visual in my thinking. Not a fantastic, but not particularly fantastic, I must say. Mm-hmm. And I breeze through a lot of description, really, because most of the time it doesn't matter. You read about a whole lot more tall men with brown hair who are there for half a chapter, then you read introductions to the people who were there for the next two million words. Lieutenant Callow meets her sergeant, who is easy enough to spot. He is a tall orc with a single red stripe of his rank sewn into his shoulder pad, his skin closer to brown than green, and he was talking to a particularly skinny goblin sporting the same insignia. That's it. Hakram is tall and kind of brown, and Robber is skinny. And Robber, I was so worried when he first spoke. His first words are horribly appropriate. Pleasure to meet you, Lieutenant. I should get back to my men before Pickler realizes I'm gone. Luck in battle, Hakram. But then, after 
parting words, the goblin scuttles away around the hill after offering me an amusingly sloppy salute. We get a taste. We get a taste. Our little guy's in there somewhere. He's he's not the robber that we know and love yet, but he is still robber. I know that and I love it. As he's as he's leaving, uh <laughs> Hockram offers a response to the luck in battle in what is referred to as one of the most common orc forms of farewell. It's metal as heck and absolutely amazing. He says, wade in their blood, robber. That's that being a common form of farewell is absolutely incredible. We've mentioned before in this very episode, but clearly the orcs have a rich culture and we only get shreds of it, but most glorious of the races. We get and yet sometimes they fail us. We get that that very powerful and not unexpected line, but we also get a a line from Hawkram that seems to be that is to me very weird coming from a wastelander as a curse he says gods be kind uh, that that feels so weird coming from somebody in praise let alone an orc the gods below aren't really known for being kind are they they are just or if not just they're reciprocal reciprocation matters only to the wait no yep that's it but gods be kind i i mean hawk i hate to break it to you they're not going to be. And that's not the only language that's interesting to me here. Much less objectionable, but Lieutenant Callow is here referred to, and later referred to again, as a greenie. Greenhorn, a newbie, uh, you know, it makes sense. But in a world where greenskins are a thing, I find it interesting that the term developed to mean noob. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, it, that definitely feels like a case of our language being uh, of our understanding of language necessarily being used so that when the phrase is tossed around we know exactly what it means but if if you live in a world with orcs you would think that referring to a soldier as being green would be a compliment it would be talking about how ferocious they are maybe that is interesting that's a good point i hadn't thought about like greeny you'd expect that one headmistress black dealt with to be <laughs> saying i will not permit any greenies in the school right first you let in the goblins and then all of a sudden you have wait why are you walking me towards the window what the oh, no! and end scene it was very good nice job thank you but we got anyone else in this roll call yeah exactly i speaking of green skins we do get a mention only of one of the preeminent military minds in colernia we get captain juniper the hellhound She's mentioned without really any description. We don't know anything about her other than that she heads up the best company in the War College. We get a little bit of description later on about her being pretty smart, but right now we more or less just have her name. And that is, that's pretty much it. Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> it's wonderful. We get a, we get a reference of course, to Ratface. We don't really know much about him yet either, other than he is named Ratface. Which is his choice, and it is a strong one. A powerful choice. And then we're off to meet him. Uh, Lieutenant Callow walks, walks off up the hill along a dirt trail, finding the legionary armor to be surprisingly light on her shoulders after a month of traipsing around in plate. And I'm really worried about her performance in this contest now, because if I know anything, plate makes you super fast. Yeah, that's true. Without the okay? without the augmentation of full plate, uh, I mean, she's going to be slower with a sword. She's going to be caught off. She'll be really noisy, too. Noisy enough that when she enters the command tent, everyone's already where she's entering. They look at her, including, if I may focus on the descriptions, a strikingly handsome boy with gray eyes and olive skin. This will be important momentarily. First human we're being introduced to here. He is a strikingly handsome boy. I don't believe Catherine ever has anything going on with him, but he gets a description of but he gets a description of strikingly handsome. Just hold on to that. The point is coming. She is reporting for duty as she says, Captain, and she hesitates because she was told his name is Ratface, but she hesitates because Honestly, 
with very good reason. If I were told, hey, your commanding officer's name is Ratface, there'd be a part of me that would be wondering, is this some kind of hazing thing where I insult the captain and he gets mad at me? And fortunately, no, he, he steps in and introduces himself as Ratface. No one is allowed to speak poorly of Ratface. He's the best. I'm sorry. He is the best, but it is still weird seeing him in a position of power. I mean, he's always in a position of power. We see him later in a position of power, but like relative power. He's he's in Scribe's position, practically, or at least a piece of Scribe's position later on. He's a an administrator, not a manager. But here, he's the captain. I just think that's funny. It is, but he starts in this position over Hockram, over Cat, over Robber, and later on he's kind of just, you know, the guy who gets things done and spends the vast majority of his time off-screen, actually. Yeah, until his retirement off-screen, where he goes and lives happily forever and nothing bad happens. (laughs) He does, however, uh, regret being saddled with a greenhorn before the big contest, which, fair. And though she's seen combat before, he says, I don't care if you castrated an ogre in single combat. And just give her a minute. She'll get to the ogre shortly. It'll be great. It'll be a whole thing. Just breathe, rat boy. Rat boy. She is then spoken to by an orc, a large green-skinned lieutenant who speaks in Karsum. Uh, And previously we get a description of this orc as making a goblin look comically small next to the thick muscled orc at her side. So we have an orc who we know is orky. But which orc could it be? Well, he compliments Cat's teeth, which is weird from an orc for reasons that we'll get into over time. They've got he a compliments weird... her little teeth. <laughs> Pretty little human teeth. Very, oh. very weird thing to say. And is told to stop flirting with the rookie. This is this is our boy Nock, who just has a special place in everybody's heart because he just has a rough go of it. But poor little baby. Honestly. But he's here now. We get knock. We get most uh we get a, a good portion of the gang together. And that's, that's pretty much it for introductions. Yeah, nobody else shows up. Oh wait, actually, there's a name wait, thrown out. We don't yeah. really get much of a description aside from you know hair color but killian is here the killian mm-hmm. who at this point all we know about her is she's a lieutenant oh a short red-haired lieutenant mm-hmm. we'll have to so pay we attention a... we'll have to we'll have to watch her and see if she develops into an important character at all find it hard to imagine we have a handsome gray-eyed boy with olive skin and then we have a short red-haired lieutenant we got a handsome boy. You know how Cat is. You know her history is a little bit already. Mm-hmm. I think we can see what kind of story this developing into. So weird to see her listed with neither lust nor regret Awkward. or pain. Yeah. There's no awkwardness in how she's described or talked to. And that's very weird. What? We get... Let's end this with a piece of advice. Yep. The chapter ends with... Knock give or not knock. I'm sorry. The chapter ends with Ratface giving a little bit of advice to Cat. Uh, he says, Sergeant Hawkram knows his business. If he tells you you're doing something stupid, listen to him. And we get a little bit of prep for what's coming, but that piece of advice pretty much sticks with Cat forever. She has her disagreements with Hawkram. Uh, I, you know, I oh, don't yeah. think it's a problem to to say, but he is. No. Perfect her... couple is perfect without work. Exactly. But he is her right hand and her advisor, her... her <laughs> he is her life partner. I mean, honestly, yeah. They are platonic life partners through and through. And uh, it's Ratface who sets that up for us. But for the rest of who these people are and getting to know them, we'll have to wait for future chapters because... One, that ends this chapter, and two, that is all the time we have for today. It's next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata, as we discuss... Schemes. Losses. And small victories. Wade in their blood.
Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Lo-Fi Roads for Intro Slash Outro 0132 by Tuesday Night. The defenestration sound was 040683 Breaking Glass by Pixabay. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions? comments or contributions are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors email us at thelongprice at gmail.com if you'd like to materially support our work find our patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name receive personalized stories and art or even join a p-g-t-e inspired rpg We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron in Liege. Always the claimant, never the named. Next week, Chapter 16, Named.